Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. Welcome everyone to episode 31 of the Retro Disney World Podcast. This episode is Mission to Mars, where we're going to be taking you back to Flight to the Moon and Mission to Mars and Tomorrowland in the early 70s and the late 70s and 80s. So uh, with that, as always, I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting in with me tonight uh, is Mr. Brian P. Miles from Pennsylvania. How are you tonight, Brian? Yeah. Hello from the Keystone State where we have these warm summer evenings yeah. and fireflies outside. And it's just a lovely time it of is. year. Warmed up, warmed up. Do you guys all have fireflies? I know there are parts of the country that do not, which was news to me. Well, they can't answer yet. I haven't introduced them. So you want to wait to the end? <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. You can. That's uh, right. Um, and from Ohio, Mr. JT Kuzier tonight. How are you, sir? Good. How's it going? All right. JT, do you have fireflies in Ohio? Um, yeah. They, we don't really refer to them as fireflies, though, like uh, glow bugs, that sort of stuff. And then you smash them and rub them on your arm as a kid, you know, so your arm glows. That oh. sounds about right for Ohio. Yeah. So we have a few in here in New Hampshire, but when we were growing up in New Jersey, we called them uh, lightning bugs. Oh, that's Light- what they're well, called. Lightning call bugs. Yeah. Yeah. Lightning yeah. bugs. Yeah. Lightning yeah. bugs. Yeah. Yeah. So and let's, I was I was I was going with the summer magic, you know, oh, burl yeah. lives, fireflies. But yeah. who else is with on the show with us tonight, <laughs> Todd? <laughs> well, yeah, let's check in with our investigative reporter on the uh, uh, the entomology section of Tampa. Uh, all the way in from Tampa is Mr. Hal Bowers tonight. How are you doing tonight, Hal? Good evening, Todd. I'm coming to you live from the uh, entomology wing of the Tampa Bug Fest. Um, <laughs> no, we have we have no uh, we have no fireflies here. To my knowledge, okay. I think there might be a couple in Central Florida, but we're mostly firefileless. I, I think that's here. where I found the conversation to occur was talking to some folks who live by the parks in in Florida, and they were like, "What? What's what's a lightning bug?" <laughs> like, yeah, really? There's some fake ones in jars that fly around, like in the Country Bear Jamboree. Yeah, or yes, someplace. And I I, but, I thought some in the, in the Bayou scene in Disneyland and Pirates of Caribbean. There's some. Oh well. yeah, that's that's the most famous. Those are the ones a little. They're on grain fans. Of, they're pretty. It's pretty yeah, cool. the grain of wheat. Uh, so Californians ones. who listen to us, do you have them out there? That's, right. that's a that's a good question. You have to let us know. So outside of Disneyland, send all your intel. Uh, entomological questions uh to podcast at retro so <laughs> and what color are their butts are they <clears throat> they're always like a yellow always, amber yeah. see there, i thought there were some green there ones are great yeah there are some light really light, light green ones yes are they the christmas ones <laughs> painted for the holidays on so thanks for tuning in to the retro bug world podcast <laughs> right you that's back. great we'll see you next time <laughs> All right. Well, it is time. Brian, take us out. Yeah. (laughs) 
it's time that we jump into our corrections and comments as always um bj major wrote in and uh talking about the our last month's episode which was where we took you back to the grand opening of walt disney world as, as well as a whole bunch of other uh different television specials we spoke of and uh she wanted to tell us a little bit extra information about meredith wilson's uh appearance as we talked about he was in there and, and directed the uh um the, the the band and the concert at the end but he actually was the one uh that directed the 76 trombones and uh he was in a uh apparently he was in some sort of uh small gazebo that they pulled the head of all the trombones at the end and uh which is which is kind of neat and uh, he was also in um in 1959 he was in a, in a in a band uh or directed a band i should say at disney at disneyland so there were definitely some more uh connections there from from meredith wilson and uh, so that's pretty cool. So thank you, BJ. Appreciate you writing in. And she also wrote in, along with Tim Hare, about a correction that, uh, Brian, we, we, we misspoke about, or you misspoke about an, an, um, a specific person in the Epcot uh, special. It, so, so when I listened back to the episode, uh, even before we did the QA uh, and released it, I knew I had gotten this wrong uh, as soon as I heard myself say it on the show. And I'm like, oh, no. So I had misidentified when I was going through some of the promotional films that they showed for Epcot and Spaceship Earth. Uh, they, I, I said that Isaac Asimov was uh, was talking to the Imagineers, and I meant Ray Bradbury. Uh, so uh, BJ and like five or six other people all felt it necessary to call my attention to it, and I appreciate that. Uh, yes, I absolutely know that was Ray Bradbury, and now so do all of you. That's right. So I was going to say something at the time because I knew. Mm-hmm. and a- Absolutely. I figured you would have. <laughs> it's one of the laws of robotic corrections, That's I right. believe. That's right. Um, and we have a bit of, uh, I guess, retro news. Uh, how this one I'm going to send over to you regarding the original 20K sub-narration has been yeah, located, so huh? On our, on our 20K sub-episode... We talked about how there was a, a version of the sub-narration that was previous to the one that, that we became accustomed to, uh, that, that we were tipped off by a plastic seaweed on Twitter, um, but we there was no evidence of it. And lo and behold, about two or three, three weeks later, after we aired that episode, uh, I believe it was Widen Your World... Um, Mike Lee's uh, website and also Facebook uh, page actually uh, published a audio copy of the original narration, which I believe was recorded by a guy that sent him a bunch of recordings who was blind. So he went to Walt Disney World in the early years with a gigantic tape recorder and recorded all kinds of stuff. So um, it is out on YouTube. We will put a link in the show notes and you can go listen to the original narration and, and hear the differences. And it's quite an amazing coincidence that after all these years, it finally popped up. So it's yeah. very cool. And then, you know, that's a, a great segue in here. Um, Mike Frank wrote to us and, and says he loves the podcast and uh, he says he feels it's the the best. Well, appreciate that, Mike. We think we're the best too. So, uh, he's a huge fan of Retro Epcot, and um, he said he's listened to our Listen to Land episode a dozen times. But how, in keeping with the recording, he says he would like us to do a show called Tales of the Styrofoam Head and play all the 360 audio that was recorded with the equipment from Radio Shack. I want to hear Horizons. 
Well, Horizon Horizons is out on on my personal website, uh, Kingdom of Memories Kingdom of Memories dot com. So he can hear it there. But you know what? It would be great to do uh, a show where we go over uh, some some just so some of that audio because that that would be really fun and it would bring it to this group. Which I know there may or may not be crossover between our listeners and people that happen to wander around to our website. So. That would be good. And you know what? We, uh, we're we talking about doing Horizons this year, so there would certainly be some opportunity to uh, to play some of it during the Horizons episode. Would, would you say that topic is on the horizon? Ah. Uh, yes. Yes, it's there. And for those of you who don't visit Howe's site, uh, kingdomofmemories.com, on a regular basis, we are now starting um, to to syndicate his his publications, his articles and, and music and such um, on the retro WDW.com. So going forward, anything that he posts on his site will come over as a, as a syndicated feed on retro WDW.com. We tried to get the old stuff and pull it over, but house site wanted nothing to do with that. So uh, <laughs> we worked hard folks. We tried, we tried, we, we threw in the towel. Oh, what do you expect? The entire site is being run by styro, a series of styrofoam heads That's with right. wires attached to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's all Tandy equipment too. So yeah, <laughs> I just have a question for Mike. Uh, if you've listened to our episodes a dozen times, is it like Sergeant Pepper where you're looking for secret messages that we've put in the in the episode or something? And if so, have you discovered them? Right. Oh. right. We've, inquiring minds want to know. So, um, But with that, all of our uh, we're going to skip listener mail this month because all the comments and corrections were, were uh, and, and mail that we got uh, really was uh, going back to this the previous episode. And I will say, guys, I mean, we got a lot of comments on this uh on this past episode about the the specials and a number of people were looking forward to uh uh number two uh you know part two in fact one one person tweeted us and said when we told them we were going to be recording about mission to mars tonight they said what what about primetime specials part two well (laughs) there's parts two three four five and six we have to do yet so tune in uh, next month yeah, That's they right. they did a lot of primetime specials. Yeah. That was maybe but really annually almost or Yeah. And then you throw in some of the 16 millimeter specials and different things. We've we've got a lot to cover over the the next couple of years, so we'll we'll definitely do a number 2 in there somewhere. God willing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so with that, we're going to move on to the audio rewind portion of the program. And uh, last month we gave away the big prize pot guys, right? So we're starting we're starting new this month. Um, so let's take a listen to last month's audio rewind. All right, so if you guessed Magic Journeys, you're correct. That was actually directly from the soundtrack of soundtrack of the film Magic Journeys, which played over at the Imagination Pavilion in Epcot until Captain EO opened up, and uh, surely a topic of a future episode. But we have a prize to give. And then it moved where? Where Mickey's Phil Her Magic is right now. Yes, it was in the Magic Kingdom for like another six or seven years. That's right, yep. Yeah. And uh, then the Lion King took over, and now Mickey's in there. So, But we do have a winner this month. Congratulations to Mark Brent, who guessed this month's Audio Rewind Puzzler. You will be receiving the GAF Guide, um, which is the Magic Kingdom Guide from that photo company that's got all sorts of great park maps information and traction information uh, from back, I think it was 1973 or so. So it's pretty cool. Um, we do have a prize for this month. I have a stack of old... Uh, Disney postcards from the 70s and 80s. So we're going to be giving that away this month. If you can guess this month's Audio Rewind Puzzler. 
If you think you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind Puzzler, send your guesses to podcast at retrowdw.com. Entries are due by July 24th, 2017. All, ra- all winners will be entered into a random drawing to find out who wins this month's prize, the postcard pack. So, um, we, should, we should mention, since you mentioned the GAF uh, prize from last month, that uh, we, we, we talked briefly last month about the, the photo opportunities that were on Main Street and in downtown Disney uh, for, from, the, from the photo companies. Uh, old-timey photos and taking your photo on, the, on a uh, backdrop of the of the caboose of a train uh we did get a few people who wrote in to us or tweeted at us about that uh and remembered getting the pictures uh, we did not get any of them that accompanied an actual scan of the photo so it seems like a lot of people have them buried in albums and whatnot but uh Myself we're included. still encouraging <laughs> yeah we're still encouraging anybody who got one of those photos on on main street or, or in uh, lake buena vista shopping village back in the day to send it to us because we would love to uh see them and feature them um, now we've, we've got to talk about a prize pot. So we gave away the first half of the year prize pot last month. So it's July. We're kicking off the new second half prize pot, the summer or yeah, summer fall pot prize pot here. And, um, I've got the first item to add as uh, a life magazine from October, 1971. That's part of what David Eppen had sent to us uh, a few months back. So thank you, David, for adding that into our collection and, and, and that into the prize pot so if you're a new listener if you're not too sure how the prize pot works basically all entries that are received for the uh, audio rewind between now and the end of this and december episode are automatically entered into a drawing for the prize pot each month we add another item and our uh scribe here a jt gets out a piece of paper writes it down every month and tells us what we've got so you've you've got this one jotted down there jt new sheet of paper we are ready to go keeping track although last month they did not mail the sheet of paper so i apologize but uh, it's for my records this month we'll mail the sheet of paper <laughs> fair enough fair enough all right and again if you know the answer to this month's audio rewind send your entries to podcast at retro all entries must be received by july 24th 2017. All right, well, it's time to dive into our main topic and how you have been biting at the bit for a long time to do this episode, I know. Uh, We're going to be taking our listeners back to Flight to the Moon and Mission to Mars, and we're also going to be talking a little bit about the special film that we're going to be releasing when this podcast comes out that I think, I don't think anybody has seen it since that attraction has closed, and nobody has ever seen it in that level of clarity before. So, how this is uh this is your episode and we'll let you take it away and uh, let's talk about it. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's let's spend two and a half hours talking about a five and a half minute ride. You got forty five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> so I did. I I do. Uh, I am looking forward to this. It was one of the rides at Walt Disney World that I personally absolutely hated once i got past the age of like seven or eight so so you're the perfect guy to to lead us on this journey yeah well and i completely expected to just spend my entire time just ripping this thing to shreds uh but the more i went back and thought about it and listened to my recordings and looked at some of the videos i realized there was there was it may not have been presented in the best way but there was actually a lot of really cool stuff going on uh, and, and maybe it was more appreciated in the seventies when it came out than, you know, in the nineties when the thing finally died. But, you know, there's, there's, there's some good meat there. So we'll, oh, yeah. we'll talk about that stuff. Um, so 
uh, I think what we need to do a little bit is talk about the origin of the show because, uh, or just what it was. So, so Mission to Mars was a show that uh, would give you a simulated rocket trip to Mars. Uh, but it started out in Disneyland as as a show called Rocket to the Moon. Uh, it was a nearly it was either opening day or nearly opening day attraction. Uh, oh, nearly opening day. It was sponsored by TWA and it opened on July twenty second, nineteen fifty five. So you would walk into this very kind of unique shaped modern building, uh, <clears throat> and then you would go on a crude simulation of a moon tour. Um, there's no pre-show. You just walk right into one of the two theaters and uh, you watch films projected on the ceiling and on the floor through portals. And the captain would describe what was going on uh, through speakers. And then um, the in-theater effects <laughs> consisted solely of um, a couple of things. So there was a... Uh, there were like air-powered shakers or rockers underneath your seats so that way when you blast it off it would kind of like bounce your seats up and down which probably <laughs> was probably a big thrill in 1955 i was gonna say this is 55 so anything that moved in a theater that other than the seat or yourself right that's pretty, yeah that's pretty I mean, cool for its time the level of sophistication here was you know not fantastic it was basically like two two films projected you know in at the same time with some audio and uh, some doors that would open and shut. And then there was also this this kind of groovy instrument panel that was on the wall with dials that would move during the show. So that would that would pretend to show you like the ship's velocity and direction and the distance from the Earth uh, and its attitude, which is that fancy word for tilt. So during the show, when the captain would talk about the fact that the rocket was tilting forward to like show you the moon, it's like the little dial would move to show as if like the rocket was was tilting and i guess that made it more realistic um <laughs> but it was you know uh, for 1955 I'm, sh I'm sure that was a lot of fun uh people really liked it uh twa was the sponsor uh so because of that uh, the guests were seated by ladies in space stewardess garb uh and oddly enough that tradition of of having women working as cast members um continued right up to the end it's like occasionally there would be guys in there but for the most part it, it was ladies the entire time which was kind of interesting kind of like a reverse of the jungle cruise it sounds like um, it should be like something from airplane the sequel like with trans world airlines you know yeah. and they're all <laughs> welcome aboard the white zone never stopping in a yeah <laughs> you know what they probably did something not too dissimilar from exactly that. yeah 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 so uh so that version of the show um changed sponsors in 1962 uh to douglas aircraft who who made uh dc-8s and uh, all kinds of fancy uh airplanes like that so i i don't know why they wanted to sponsor a rocket ride but uh but they did uh, and then finally in 1967, uh, when the rest of Disneyland's Tomorrowland went through a big revamp, uh, that version of the show was pretty much demolished, uh, and a much larger rethought and expanded version of the show with a pre-show that included a trip to, uh, Mission Control and, uh, larger theaters with enhanced effects, uh, came into, into play with a new name called Flight to the Moon. So that is the show that we got in Florida, but we were actually not supposed to get that. Uh, hmm. And and I will explain. So um, how, one other thing to add in too is that the, the Moonliner is probably one of the most recognizable 
Disneyland, yeah. Disneyland uh, landmarks that, you know, it was this almost like a Bugs Bunny V2 rocket with the TWA logo on it and the landing pod doors coming down with a super pointy. I mean, it was, that's one of those things that if it was, you know, you put it on the landmarks like the LAX um, uh, terminal or the terminal at JFK, just an incredible piece for its time. Yeah, and there's a, a tinier version of that now uh, that's still in Tomorrowland and Disneyland. It's it's not as big as the original one. And I want to say I saw some crazy thing where they made two of those Moonliners uh, and one of them ended up on the roof of some, oh, I can't remember now, some manufacturing plant or something someplace. So there's, Oh, really? Yeah, there was still this other one hanging around somewhere. It was pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is definitely an iconic, uh, to use that word properly, I hope, uh, Disneyland thing. And, and was uh, it was a huge piece of Tomorrowland. And, and uh, there were several model kits available, too, through the years. Hmm. So you could build your own Moonliner and have it home, uh, should you choose. I, I know a guy in Sarasota who has, I think, two or three different sizes of models. So that's cool. It's yeah, pretty nifty. So uh, as great as it was, it was not supposed to come to Florida. Um, so, so here's the deal. So while Walt Disney World is being developed, this thing called the Apollo program. Apollo Creed? More Rocky every... <laughs> Apollo Creed. It's the Italian Stallion. <laughs> Sounds like a damn monster movie. Every podcast we gotta get Rocky. <laughs> he, he is... He, his goals <laughs> were to beat up Rocky and get to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever whichever order was was worked for that. Um, while James Brown sang "Living in America," <laughs> I want you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so that Apollo program uh, was in full swing in in the late '60s. So unmanned launches began in 1967 of the the Saturn vehicles, and by time Walt Disney World held its formal announcement press conference in October of 1969. Both Apollo 11 and 12 had actually landed on the moon. So flights to the moon uh, as an idea were surpassed by reality uh, a couple of years before Walt Disney World was supposed to open. So subsequently, Disney really didn't want that attraction in Florida. Um, when RCA signed a contract with Disney to provide computer systems, uh, there was an attraction that was supposed to be built called Computerama. Uh, and I have seen a couple of older park maps um, that showed this Computerama attraction uh, in the space where Mission to Mars would ultimately go. Um, what we know about Computerama is that it would show guests um, a little bit about how RCA's computers were used to control and monitor the Walt Disney World Resort. So does that concept sound familiar to anybody? Oh, the, the Astuter, as, com the Astuter, Astuter computer, computer Review. Yeah, so oh, that okay. that same concept ended up, it took another 20 years, but it ended up getting used for the Astuter Computer Review. Um, there was also, um, there's also a interview with Marty Sklar in the, um, in an old issue of the um, e-ticket magazine, which unfortunately I don't have anymore, so I can't tell you which issue it is, and I, I wish I did have it so I could tell you. But uh, he actually mentioned pitching uh, another concept to RCA that would take you on a trip inside of a computer, sort of on a microscopic level, uh, 
using like Tron. Yeah, kind of like a pre-Tron Tron. <laughs> like Body Wars, um, but because this would computers. Yeah, because this was would have been in the early seventies, uh, and you would basically use that mission to Mars, uh, or I should say, the rocket to the moon kind of idea of like the big round room with screens on the side, and you would take this trip through the computer. <laughs> Um, but they, they didn't go for that either. Um, so I think his hope there was there, if, if he could get RCA to fund it in, uh, in Florida, then they could take that ride to California and they would be able to update that, uh, at some point too. But, um, that, that didn't happen. And, and instead, um, RCA went on to sponsor Space Mountain. So we got, um, Space Mountain instead of Computerama. <laughs> so I, I guess that was ultimately a good trade-off, but... That meant that uh, we had to have something else. So Flight to the Moon was hastily added to Tomorrowland uh, and it opened unsponsored because apparently McDonald or Douglas or McDonald Douglas at that time, Douglas was actually had a merger with McDonald Aircraft and became right, McDonald right. Douglas. Yeah. Um, so uh, perhaps they didn't feel like sponsoring something in Florida made, made any sense. I don't know. So Flight to the Moon opened unsponsored. Uh, unsponsored on december 24th 1971 as a clone of the disneyland attraction uh and it remained open only until april 15th 1975 uh at that point um it opened as a d ticket attraction uh but it actually got bumped down to a c ticket by 1974 so it was clear that they were trying to do something to to get people to go in there maybe it wasn't as popular as they uh, as they hoped it was that, going to be. That's really in- interesting um, because you know it kind of feels like whatever went into that space followed that same pattern, starting off big and just <laughs> falling down. You know, um, that's kind yeah. of interesting. It's, I'll tell you, I I think that format of of a room with like the big round room with seats around it and then kind of something on the floor in the ceiling is is kind of a curse. It's like you're un, until someone is willing and imaginary is willing to go like no we just tear out that space and do something else in there completely different it's like everyone just keeps trying to go with that same format where you s- sit down and it's I, th- I think i think part of it is that people are willing to go into a theater for a film people are when you when you get go into what look like ride seats attraction seats they expect to move and do things and and that that everything that's ever been in that space, it's kind of a disappointment. Yeah. Especially if you've waited in a line for it. <laughs> yeah, there's... It's funny, I actually have a recording where uh, where we get through the pre-show and then uh, there's this guy in front of me with his daughter and the doors open up and he goes to walk into the room and he's like, oh God, <laughs> not this again. <laughs> I forgot about he this had, one. <laughs> he, he had written it in California and didn't, it, on, probably when it was Flight to the Moon and didn't realize... When he got into Mission to Mars, that he was going into the same thing again. So, yeah, it's pretty funny. What about the um, what about the infrastructure? I mean, the infrastructure can't be that hard in there, but it, it is sunken down, so that area would have to be filled in, right? Because you enter at ground level, so there there is there yeah. is some infrastructure challenges. Maybe not not that they're insurmountable, but you know, it is a unique shape theater. It's a unique shape building. We don't know what the rest of it is around it. When you're dealing with circles. You know, it's hard. You have to figure out how to knock those two things down and do something in that oval space, the, if you will. The 
the discussions I have read about, you know, armchair Imagineers, if I was in charge, what I would do, one of the most interesting ones I read was someone talking about connecting the two spaces because you could yeah. connect them on but, but beneath oh, where easily. we walk uh, to, to make it one actual moving attraction, you know, where ride vehicles would yeah. be able to go between the two buildings of uh, what is now Monsters, Inc., Laugh Floor and Stitch. There's a lot of space back there. In fact, I think one time I tried to look and see, just for fun, it's like, could you have actually fit Mission Space inside of Mission to Mars? And I think to an extent, you hmm. actually could have put a limited number of those Mission Space style spinning vehicles like within that area. Uh, since Mission to Space is in some ways kind of like the next generation version of the Mission to Mars ride. So. Only the screen is, you know, one-tenth the size, and there's only <laughs> <Right>. one of them. <laughs> right. And it, and the Mission to Mars doesn't have barf bags. That's true. No. Well, it might, but for a different reason, just because you're... <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Sick of riding it. So, hey Yeah. Anyways, uh, so, uh, so Mission to Mars opened up uh, along with Phase 2 of Tomorrowland in... Uh, in uh, summer, uh, June 7th of 1975. Uh, and it continued to run unsponsored until 1981, when finally, for some reason, McDonnell Douglas acquiesced to sponsoring it. Uh, and they sponsored it for five years and ended sponsorship in the fall of 1986. And it ran unsponsored then from 1986 until it finally died. So, um, pretty weird. So, to give you an idea of where it was located, um, it was on the left side of the concourse, where Stitch Encounter is today, as we've been talking about, um, under one of those beautiful giant spires that we all like to look at pictures of. Um, the building's large open ground floor uh, basically had huge windows that would go from the ground floor up to the second floor. Uh, JT was talking about it earlier and said it reminded him kind of like an old shopping mall. Yeah, it's big glass, like, and then it's it's just very like when you when I think of it now, now it seems that '90s Tomorrowland back then it just looks like a mall. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Now, now it's it's just like all completely covered over. I think you, you where you go in, it's like that blue gray or something like that. It's just yeah, yeah. you can't see anything. You can't see so, anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, it's like that. It, it reminds me of like the breezeway, you know, the double. Well, think double of, glass. think about that too. The double glass. If you guys have ever been to. You know the the launch center over at Kennedy that has a very odd angle double st story glass to it where they launch. So it's it, it's almost kind of replicating that true. You know that area where you're going into. So it's pretty yeah, it was, pretty cool. I think it was just very you know that was the very modern look at that time. Um, so it was kind of neat because you, as you walked up to the building, you could actually look inside and see the people waiting, <laughs> and you could tell how how bad the line was just by that. Um, and you could also see. Uh, the brightly colored alternating walls uh, that uh, that those areas in Tomorrowland had. So there, there was uh, sort of like an orange stripe and a yellow stripe and a pink stripe, and it would go up to the the top floor. And then there was kind of this interesting like wavy thing going on in the ceiling. So that was that was pretty groovy. Um, so as you you walked up to the to the actual entrance door, kind of where the entrance door to Stitches, um, there was a countdown clock attached to the ceiling that would show you the time remaining until the next Mars flight. So uh, I think that was a pretty neat, neat feature, but yeah. I want to know, were any of you ever enticed in just based on the fact that like, oh, it's only three minutes until the next one, so. Oh, absolutely, you're, you're pulled right in. I mean, that's, you know, there's a couple attractions I think that still use that 
that technique, if you will. Uh, Country bears. Yeah, listen to the um, no, the environmental fable uses it. Yep. Your time tick down. Were those were those Nixie tubes? Or no. Was it a flip? Was it? A it fl- was. I couldn't flip. It digits? was the. Uh, it wasn't the flip style. It was actually um, the kind where the the segments. Uh, like if you pictured a clock with uh led not led just sort of like brightly colored plastic segments yeah like somehow the plastic segment that would form the number would would turn on and off oh yeah yeah okay i know what you mean yep yeah so i'm sorry i don't have a better description of that yeah the flip the flip the 70s flip thing would have been really (laughs) really cool i swear Um, i remember seeing nixie tubes in the in the attraction somewhere but i could be mistaken hmm. Hmm. There, well, there were a lot of different lighted things in uh, in Mission Control, certainly. Mm. So it might have been there. Um, so cool. All right. So you were lured in by that. So it, it worked perfectly. Yeah, because it's a lot of times I go into um, things like you know Impressions de France or the the uh, the Canadian uh, 360 show, and I'm like, how much longer is it until the thing starts? So oh yeah, Canada has that like bar graph thing. Yeah, that goes down. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's that one's cool. But so, but you got to know where to look for it. That's mm-hmm. if, if you know it's there, then you can see it. Um, all right. So, so entering the waiting area, finally, you can see three doors directly in front of you, and really the only entertainment that was to be had um, were a series of backlit photographs of Mars in these hexagonal light boxes that kind of stuck out of the side of the wall, um, which I'm sure was awesome for 1971, or I should say 1975. Uh, or you could kind of look up, and every so often you could see a people mover go by because that glass went all the way up to the second story. So the, the people right. movers yeah. could look down and see you waiting, and, and you could see them waiting. And, um, and at this time, too, what, Mariner 1 had landed on Mars. So some of these pictures were fairly you know, recent, or you may have not seen them that large or that up close. Um, so this was, you know, even though Apollo had passed uh, its prime, so to speak, um, still putting something on a, on a Martian planet was... It's still very exciting. So yes, as a matter of fact, that's what I was just going to mention next because there was there was actually a plaque inside the waiting room that mentioned how NASA had cooperated with the development of the ride, and it talked about how a lot of the photos came from the Mariner Nine program. Um, so yeah, you were you were dead on, um, and you wouldn't have seen that unless you had like what National Geographic or something. There was no internet yeah, to look there were, up Google there were images. A, there were a lot of pictures in there. They're of varying sizes. So, I mean, it was, it was enough to sort of keep you engaged uh, while you were waiting. But, you know, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the, uh, of what they're talking about now with like the queueless systems. Cause it was just a big lobby and you could just kind of wander around the lobby and look at stuff. You didn't necessarily have to, you know, just stand like in a back and forth uh, queue once you're inside there. Well, it's the same room now, right? With uh, Stitch, where you just watch that TVs in there. I mean, it's a right. Big room. Yep. Exactly the same. Um, so that kept that look uh, probably until McDonnell Douglas took over the attraction. Uh, and at that point, the backlit photos were replaced by just kind of larger flat photos uh, with pictures from the Viking mission. Because in 1976, we landed two, uh, two Mars well, not rovers, just like landing craft on Mars and kind of created a national sensation. So we got a lot better pictures of Mars at that point. So they didn't update the main show, but they did kind of refresh the uh, the pre-show area there. So when your countdown timer uh, at the 
at the end of uh there was a countdown timer also placed in front of the door so they're always trying to keep you cognizant of like how long you had until the next show uh when that reached zero the automatic doors would open ladies and gentlemen may i have your attention please when we leave this area in a moment be sure to take along all your belongings including your imagination. So there might have been a little hint that maybe <laughs> what you're going to see was not going to be super awesome. Let's um, pretend. Yeah. <laughs> for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you would follow uh, the crowd through the doors and then uh, past a, a curve, down a little curved path uh, and then into a tiered pre-show area. So much like the Tiki Room or the same way it is in Stitch today, it's like there were levels inside of that so uh so the people in the back would be able to see over the people in front of them and those people would be able to see the people in front of them so they could watch and you this know exciting pre-show that really served a purpose too is because it, it it forced people to separate not crowd give them a view and later on as, as we talk about when you went into the theater it, it controlled where you were going to go you know into the rows in the theater so it was Smart design, I think. Yeah, you could, and you could let. Uh, I think they would probably let one row go, and then let a second row go, and then yeah. the third row. So it wasn't like a big rush into the hallways. It was. It's a good control tactic. Um, so, uh, just like Stitch, you're standing there, except in front of you know, the uh, whatever the robot is named now. I can't remember. I only. I haven't seen the Stitch encounter, so you'll have to excuse me. I'm. I'm a little low on details there. Um, so in, instead of that setup, you look over and you see what was sort of like this fake mission control with uh, staffed by audio animatronic technicians, including a woman. They had they had got the women's lib thing by uh, by the mid 70s. So there was uh, a woman scientist in there, too, which is good. Um, and just all kinds of fake monitors on the wall and these huge consoles that they were sitting at. Uh, and the monitors were all driven by like 16 millimeter projected films. So uh, there was one main screen in the center and then kind of like two sets of, of these smaller screens off to both sides. Uh, and each one of those showed their own film uh, during the course of the thing. So there was a lot of activity on screen to, to sort of catch your eye. Uh, it was, besides, the... Go ahead. Other than the blinking, it was really, really detailed. I mean, you know, again, the, again, going back to that, Kennedy is 65 miles away, you know, they, I think with NASA helping them, they did a really good job of, of bringing a smaller scale control center to, to, to the attraction. I, I mean, I, if you didn't tell anybody and brought them in there, they might think they're in something yeah. <laughs> you know, legitimate. Yeah. And it's funny too, because there are all kinds of things like uh reel to reel, you know, the reel to reel computers that you see in the old thing. So, I mean, oh, yeah, it, yeah. it certainly appeared to be very high tech. And I remember off on the right hand side, there was this little, this neat little sort of like fake hallway, uh, the kind of thing that Disney is famous for. So if you looked on the side, there was a hallway and there was like some other computers sitting off in the hallway. So it gave you this feeling that there was, you know, something beyond the room that you're looking at that was that was really part of this mission control center. So it was it was it's well done little thing. Um, so inside that center behind a console uh, stood the director of operations. Welcome to Mission Control Space Operators. The first part of your trip to Mars 
very famous red turtleneck shirt and silver lame lab coat. That was a that was a hot look. Um, you and of still course have you, that outfit, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> that's. I, I, you I just I wear that when I go out on the weekends. Yeah. <laughs> um, now the interesting thing about Doctor Johnson is uh, the reason he was kind of tucked behind the consoles is because he had no legs. He was a figure only from the waist up. So, uh, so you you never got to see the fact that he wasn't a whole person, uh, and he had a few uh, he had a few uh, functions. It's like, of course, he could talk and tilt his head back and forth and eye blink, and he had one arm that he could move around and gesture, but his his other arm was just kind of permanently stuck to the side, uh, didn't move around. So he had a limited number of functions. He wasn't like a a fully functional figure like today, the one in uh, in Stitch Encounter and the one that was in Alien Encounter can kind of move all over the place and go nuts. So he's... I, I would recommend at some point before it goes away that you should see Stitch's Great Encounter or whatever it's called. I think that's Escape. what it's called. Um, be, sim- simply to see the the animatronic in there because it is terrific. The Stitch, the Stitch animatronic is very good. So can you, does anyone want to take a guess maybe why they named the character Dr. Johnson? Johnson Space Center. Yes, I th- I think that's it. I think that is exactly why they named him Doctor Johnson because before he was named Tom Morrow, right? Which is a classic Disney gag. Yep, yep. <laughs> but the uh, the Johnson Space Center would have been relatively new because I, I believe that didn't happen until uh, until the late sixties in Texas, and there was a big fight between Florida and Texas over who should do the actual mission control, and uh, Texas won. So. That is still a weird thing how you launch the thing in yeah. Florida. And it clears the tower and Texas has it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're John just, Johnson. It, it just goes to show you, yes, how important it is to have the uh, the Senate majority leader and then the vice president of the United States. And you happen to be from Texas. There you go. And, and really want a lot of space jobs in Texas. Yep. That is it exactly. So, uh, Dr. Johnson was voiced by a newsman and gunsmoke announcer named George Walsh. Um, so, uh, and, and a little weird thing about George is, uh, so he, you know, he had a, a career in broadcast for, God, years and years and years. He retired from broadcasting. He had done this voiceover work. He had done voiceover work for a couple of Disney films, some shorts, um, and then did the voice for this. And then he retired a couple of years later and he said he like fixed up his car and did some stuff around the house and then he got bored and then he ended up going to a job fair and actually just getting a job at Disneyland working in some of the stores on Main Street. So he worked for a while at the candy counter and then he ended up in like the Disneyana shop. So you could actually go talk to the voice of Dr. Johnson and Tom cool. Morrow in <laughs> Disneyland if, if you happen to know where to go. So that was, cool. that was pretty funny. Um, and speaking of talking to Dr. Johnson, one of one of the unique kinds of things about this ride is that the live host or hostess would actually have a little banter back and forth with Dr. Johnson as part of the script. So if, if you were a Mission to Mars hostess, you would, sort of like the way that you would wake up Jose, you would... You would uh, talk to get dr johnson's attention and have him start talking to the crowd and then uh throw him some softball questions for him to answer during the course of the show and 
and I have heard that occasionally they would the hosts who were bored would ask sort of like non sequitur questions to Dr. Johnson who would then answer them <laughs> in a in a hopefully funny way. Um, his job was to prep you for your journey on flight two nine or five uh, by showing you the wonders of space flight, uh, courtesy of NASA shot of NASA stock footage. <laughs> Filmed during Skylab missions. Uh, does anybody remember Skylab? Yeah, it was right oh, after yeah. Apollo. Absolutely, the first space station. Yep. Yeah, yep. there you go. And that was a, a unique launch vehicle that was a modified Saturn V. And uh, I always I always saw that footage. I was like, you know, wow, that, that, it's so cool. It's like a stubby version of the Saturn V. <laughs> yeah. And occasionally think... you can find pieces of it just falling on you. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Dr. Johnson, while, while we're standing around, shows examples of solar research, uh, a groove being cut into a stainless steel plate in zero gravity, which is, I don't know, but it's interesting to somebody, uh, growing crystals in space. Hey, where else do we get to see people growing crystals in space? That's right. Horizons. Horizons. Can't get enough growing crystals in space for my money. Oh, now that's really lovely. Practical, too. Just think, materials from space for all kinds of industries back on Earth. And then we get to watch about two minutes of astronauts cavorting around in Skylab, doing various things like lifting heavy equipment. And I think they making, did the yeah. eating the banana with spinning it, right? Didn't they do that? Yeah. One? Showing the banana. <laughs> Coming yeah. in for, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did, uh, uh, now how long was this whole beginning pre-show? I mean, it seems very long. It was, a, it was as long as the ride was long because it would have to keep you occupied during the exact same amount of time that the attraction was going on next Got door. Got it. So, yes, it was quite lengthy. And, oh, hey, who doesn't need some comedy relief, right? Because it's Disney. So, what's the big yuck? A albatross. bird. That's <laughs> right. An albatross trips up the uh, the emergency re-entry alarm. <laughs> In fact, there's so attention. We're all panels for possible emergency reentry. Oh no, not again. Stand by. Video signal coming in on all channels. Just as I thought. Somehow this silly bird trips the emergency system every time he comes in. And I think he knows the laughs on us. Um and oh, he said he gets yeah, us every just... time or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah he does. That's right. <laughs> Exactly. So here's here's one fun little thing that I unearthed one day when I was watching uh, Disney Channel reruns that I had taped. The footage of that albatross comes from the 1960 Disney short subject Islands of the Sea. So if you ever want to like set up your own albatross video in case an emergency happens and you need to like say get out of a, a date or something, you can have the albatross go off on your phone and be like, I'm sorry, I need to get out of here. Got a problem. Houston. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and actually, that footage of the albatross setting off alarm is still used as a gag today inside Mission Space in the queue while you're waiting. So if you're watching the monitors, that darn bird shows up and and still does that. So how about that? Uh, um, I, I, I like that. the fact that they did that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that was a nice nod. Um, so the the pre-show ends with a shot of your rocket sitting on the launch pad. And Todd, you and I have talked about how that thing of the rocket on the launch pad mm -hmm. actually looks real yeah i and i always wondered like is that some weird nasa thing like did they actually build this rocket and never launch it because there were a lot of weird you know rockets over the years but yeah 
I assume it was a model. I don't know. I felt the same way. You look at it and it actually looks so real. I wondered like, oh, is that some weird thing that they tested that they never... Yeah. I don't know. I I, I think it it must have been a model, but oh my God, it's perfect. Yeah, because it's squattier. It's with Four wider, boosters it around it there on the side you see. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's crazy, but it's got that that black and white like paint job like it's a test thing checkered flag like test track yeah yeah it's bizarre but it looks so good um and it looks also looks completely different from the artwork of the mars vehicle that they showed uh like on the poster when it was telling you that it was coming and on the poster that that was on the omnibuses oh yeah yeah (laughs) which was like this sort of long almost 2001 a space odyssey looking craft with like two um two extra rockets on the side and like this separate looking habitat module so i i don't know where that came from but man looks fantastic um so uh you get to see that and then uh it's time time to get out of there uh the door another set of automatic doors open and then you get to walk out into a hallway uh and as you walk in the hall you get to pass by this wall with this recessed tableau of a nuclear refueling station which is which was kind of i don't know it's a neat little disney touch not anything super awesome had some blinking lights and some some tube looking things and some hoses and stuff uh and then you go into the main hallway uh, which actually had this really groovy silver wallpaper uh, that I, I wish I could get a clear picture of because it, it was kind of awesome. Uh, and there were doors on the left side of that hallway and on the right side, and there was a sign hanging from the ceiling uh, with arrows that would blink that would basically tell you whether you were supposed to load into the left one or the right one. Um, and then at the end of that hall, do you remember those those infinity light things that they sold at Radio Shack with the sort of like the white lights with mirrors where it would look oh, like it yeah. went on forever. forever and ever yeah yeah well they basically had sort of like a large version of that with blinking uh red rectangles at at the end of the wall so it, it gave you this illusion that there was this thing that just kind of went off forever at the end of the hallway except you could see your own reflection in it so it was never really like a super perfect effect but it was it was you know groovy groovy for the time um and then you would finally get into the theater so uh just like when you walk into stitch today uh, you're at the top uh, and there's four rows of chairs encircling the room it's kind of like a, a walkway uh, where you come down and then uh, directly on the other side where you can go up um uh, and if you looked down on the floor there was like a big gray circle with a white screen in the middle uh and then handrails sort of ran around that um so that way you wouldn't jump on the big screen because as todd we were just alluding to uh if you were to do that you could actually fall through that screen probably to your death that's right uh, because you're actually on a big floating floor there um the way this ride worked is that there was a large space underneath there underneath where you are sitting uh and there's a a 16 millimeter film projector underneath there that would project the film via bouncing off of mirror like up into that center screen and also above you is a big attic space um, that had another 16 millimeter projector that would project uh, down on onto the roof and we should know um, too that the, the they were called the the bottom the middle and the upper scanners that's that's what they were referred to yeah in, in and then there 
rigging the walls on the two sides yeah. uh were were up two other large screens uh so you you could get like this nice sort of like widescreen 70 millimeter looking uh look from the outside uh, but we'll get into some of the details of that as as we go i feel like all the videos i've seen on this and you could comment on this uh they seem sort of like very, like, it's like, I don't want to say the theming stops right when you go into the theater. It kind of just turns into more of a theater that, like, I don't know, it's really bright and just gray. Is that, or is that just the way the videos look? Well, I mean, the colors in there are are predominantly gray and silver. There's this kind of blue corrugated wall oh. that runs around the whole thing, um, which I presume some of it was for sound deadening. Um, so that, and, and in fact, the doors that would open and close were like really thick with a thick seal. So I think the idea was to try to not let a lot of sound out of there as you were either in the other theater or in the pre-show. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was really super plasticky and like really nothing special. I think it was trying to look, you know, high tech and sciencey. Um, it, it was not like today's concept of how you design uh, something which probably comes from more of that Star Wars ethic where there's like a bunch of panels of stuff on the wall. Yeah, like, just like junk. It's just clean. Thing, yeah, thing upon thing about thing. Yeah, this was that more of that scientific, septic NASA look. Because um, yeah, there's one picture that flows around, I think D23 or somebody posted it's black and white and it's of the, the theater. It's just so like, bleh, like just nothing. Yeah. There's really, there's really not much to it. Um, it's kind of like a giant doctor's waiting room. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, there's one, when one of my recordings, I refer to the room as like the round room of boredom yeah. <laughs> to somebody as, as we're walking it. And, I, and the doors are corrugated. I love it. Yeah. Is there's just now, not a lot to it. And as you went in, did they make you sit in a certain spot or like, did people clamor for front row or was it kind of just like nobody cared, nobody knew or cared? You had to pick, pick, choose a row of your liking and can go all the way to the end, filling in each and every available seat. <laughs> Do not stop in the center. Yeah, depending on how busy it was. So <laughs> maybe in the early 70s, they did a good job packing people in. But by, by the end, there's, you could go wander and find a seat. <laughs> take three you if you to. needed it. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. lay across them, take a nap. Uh the the about the as you walked in, I do remember there was like this green static pattern that would play on the floor screen and on the top screen. And there's just kind of this constant din of like boop, boop, boop that would play in in the background. Um, but that was that was really about all that was going on during load. So so you after you picked your hard plastic seat from the 162 available, so you could get 162 people inside that thing, poor suckers. Uh, the cast member would give her final cautionary speech and she would leave the room <laughs> through that heavy door. And then a display panel above the door um, would show uh, the airlock, oxygen, cabin pressure, and cabin, cabin temperature indicator lights change from red to green. Uh, and then a no smoking sign would light up. So that was about the... <laughs> The excitement of the in-theater effect up to that point. So you had some, the red light would shift. Just in case you didn't know. You knew you... This all sounds so. This all sounds so riveting. Oh my god! It's yeah. Yes. It's fascinating. That was like people like was there uh, like sounds and like things shaking at this point or was it pretty uh, just no. no? There was kind of that uh, 
as I was alluding to, kind of that like USS Enterprise like din just going on, kind of like this low level sound that was constant. That's kind of sounded techish, just tech noise. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, just this noise thing with a couple of beeps and some. Brrrr. If you're driving your car at this point and you just heard that, it should make it feel like you're driving a spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, exactly. Uh, so they would drop the lighting once you were ready to go to draw attention to those top and bottom screens. And then liftoff would commence. So if you look down, you could see fire. And then the ground would slowly kind of pull away. Uh, and if you looked up in the sky, you could see the moon. Uh, leftover from flight to the moon kind of getting a little bit closer and as you went up through the atmosphere it's like it would change from like light blue to more of a dark blue and then finally you'd see stars um and uh if you uh look down and i, I think this whole sequence is probably just pulled over from rocket to the moon in california because you could see this launch complex and there was this weird looking building that was the shape of the the 1955 flight to the moon building so i'm sure all that was was just left over and they just continued to use it over and over again i i was always remember yeah kind of disappointed is like i expected to be seeing like tomorrowland in florida right right yeah instead it's this this silvery triple dome thing almost like a mickey head with these other launch yeah. pads off the side yeah, it's kind of odd <laughs> hidden mickey hidden mickey yeah <laughs> yeah before they knew it yeah that so now uh, I, I asked you this before the show, but like that, the, the video in the center, everybody could see that. Yeah. So for the most part, I, the, the seats were built as they are now kind of like stadium style. So you could, you could look down over the head of the person in front of you. Cause your head was about as tall as the headrest. Um, depending on where you were sitting, it's like that railing that kind of ran around the uh the outside that would keep people from falling down it's like that might get in your way a little bit um but yeah you you had everyone had a good view of the floor which i mean there's nothing more exciting than going into the room and like watching the floor for like five and a half minutes (laughs) and then i'm gonna ask this or i'm gonna say this just because it's uh some people might not know i'm playing dumb here there were no like restraints like they have restraints like they have now that go over your shoulders no no No, if if they did happen it was just because you wanted to get up and leave it would just (laughs) 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 just to hold you giving real meaning to the word restraint (laughs) they should have had them is what you're saying yeah they should have they should have there were several times when uh in the 90s when we would go on uh like hood gibson and myself and you would see somebody get disgusted and get up and leave and head to the door and we'd be like no it's an airlock you'll kill us (laughs) now here's why the seats didn't have any restraints so let's talk about the seats because there was they did have one thing so uh as the rocket would accelerate the seats would begin to push up and the concept was that it was attempting to simulate G-forces pushing you down into the seat. So they, since they could do that, they would actually push the seat up into your butt. Yeah. 
to try to trick you into thinking that you were no getting kidding. pushed down. And then when the engines cut off, they dr- they let go, so it drops. So it's felt. Oh like yeah, you were, that's clever. Yeah, or maybe it was reverse, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's it exactly. And the whole room shook too, right? The whole room was on springs or something. The really? Whole I remember yeah, rattling like like crazy. No kidding. Yeah. So did you ever feel like that was an effective illusion? Just the of, seats. Of, I, of the seat. Well, I mean, the fact that you felt like you were being pushed. In, I mean, was it effective? No, but I mean, you had to add. The rumbling of the theater and you had to add you know the the, the air bladders in the seats because you're, you're, i guess we said earlier you're staring at a screen what, was the floor minutes. really rumbling so, or were you just tricked i i remember the floor actually rumbling. i, I remember the whole thing how so the so the rumbling comes from a little innovation that they threw in there that we are very familiar with now called sub bass so they actually had huge bass woofers in there and I, this might have been the first attraction that we ever experienced or even anything that we experienced that that had really low bass in it. Um, and they would use that to do the rumble. So, you know, that actually, I think, might be a trick pulled out from like those 1950s uh, castle movies where they would have things like simulate earthquakes and stuff. But uh, using using like rumbling bass. But yeah, that was that was a whole part of the trick. And there were also some like some flashing lights and stuff inside to like <laughs> to give you a little in theater effect. But like it's the whole thing was very crude by today's standards, and which is which is why by the nineties it's like people were just not having any part of it uh, at all. Um, so once you're into orbit, third officer Collins comes over. Or he's our guide for the adventure. Uh, and things kind of perk up a little bit. Attention, please. Folks, this is Third Officer Collins speaking. I'm your tour guide today, and I'll be telling you about what's going on during the trip. Do you guys know off the top of your head what very famous Disney voice actor was the voice of Third Officer Collins? We we have talked about this gentleman before several times on the podcast. Is it Pete Renaday? It is! Hey! It is Pete Renaday. That's right. Captain Nemo and... Uh, quite a f- quite a few things. Uh, so yeah, he was he was the voice of, of Third Officer Collins, uh, who takes time out of his busy day to to show us around Mars. He draws our attention to the side screens. So we have these wonderful side screens uh, in this ride. And uh, one of the really cool things, which just kind of dawned on me, is uh, at first he's showing us a wireframe animated model of the solar system. On the side screens, our ship's computer has drawn a diagram of our solar system. And we'll tip it over and move in closer so you can see where we're going. Now, here's something that I did not consider literally until this afternoon. Uh, This show was produced in 1974, probably, to premiere in 1975. Uh, And these graphics are actually all computer-generated animations done in a wireframe style. So this has got to be one of the first uses of CGI for entertainment purposes because mm. we you i mean i remember seeing star wars and like the death star plans it's like that was in 77 and i read that uh they reused um part of uh, an animation of a hand that ed catmall who would later uh lead pixar uh created in like 72 and they stuck it in westworld in 75 but like this is 1974 this is really, really early. So it's like somebody was working with somebody in order to do that. And now I'm really fascinated because there, there were only 
three or four places in the United States that were doing any kind of computer graphic work like this at that time period. So now I really want to find out who it is because I, I think there's a really interesting story buried in here somewhere. Um, so, so that's cool. So all the fancy graphics are there to explain how difficult space travel was back in the 70s and 80s. For example, spaceships had to follow a curved path for about eight months to intercept Mars when it reached a certain spot. It was like having to hit a golf ball in California hard enough and accurately enough to make it go through one particular window of a train arriving in Florida that much later. Uh, and as off Officer Collins finishes, uh, we make a jump to hyperspace, uh, which was kind of how we could do a Mars trip in a very quick amount of time. I mean, if, if you know anything about, about moon flights, it takes, what, three, four days for the Apollo um, ships to get from the Earth to the moon? It was a... It was a multi-day process, right? You, you oh, were, yeah. you were, you were the one of us that was really alive and cognizant at that time. How? But it was, it was, yeah. three, it was three days to get from, just from the Earth to the Moon. Was was there no fast pass? There was absolutely no. <laughs> but it's always funny in movie, it, in literally every movie, because it's a movie, like Despicable Me. It's like everything. It's like they take off from the Earth and like. A minute and a half. Well, if you if you watch uh, any of the Looney Tunes, they would just get on the top of a rocket and light it, and then just shoot themselves right into the moon, and uh, we'd be fighting each other on the moon. Next thing you know, and Superman got there real fast too in Part Four. That's true. He got the nuclear weapons up there. Yeah, and Sun Man. What was his name? (laughs) So bad. It was so bad. Was it worse than Mission The Superman Mars? 4, The Quest for Peace. So <laughs> Poor bad. Chris Reeves, man. He got duped. Oh. <laughs> Soup got what, duped. What did you ask? Was it worse then, Hal? Oh, was it worse than Mission to Mars? Uh, uh, I, I only there. saw Mission to Mars once, so I don't really recall it. Mm. You mean the movie or the attraction? I guess both, maybe. <laughs> the Tim Robbins movie? Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was Gary Sinise, wasn't it? I think he's in there, too. Oh, yeah, it's, I, I only saw it once. I went there like monsters on Mars when they got there or something. It was They're aliens. so crazy. Yeah, but maybe that's why Gary Sinise ends up in Mission Space. Yeah, he's he's the space guy. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that started with Apollo thirteen, didn't it? Wasn't he yeah. in Apollo thirteen? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. He he's also in the kidnapping attraction in Tomorrowland. I ransom. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've met him, by the way. Oh, yeah. Did, what? Where at? Uh, it was at a charity function about ten years ago here in the city in Philadelphia, and uh, he was the guest of honor and uh, kind of hung out off the stage. And he came off, and and uh, you know we we shook hands, and at no point did I think to mention uh, anything good. Well, I didn't think to mention Mission Space to him. Like I. You should- like I, I just, like you would think that would be the natural thing I would bring up is not one of oh, his yeah. films, but hey, you're in that Disney attraction, and I guess at the time I was uh, a little more restrained on those topics. I mean, no, you now, really would want to now say when, when I meet anybody, words. like like if I ever like if I ever meet uh, uh, Patrick Warburton, you know the the flight guy from Sora, oh, like yeah. uh, that that is I'm not talking Seinfeld with him. I mean the f- oh. or Family Guy. The first thing I'm bringing up is you know nice work, pal. Mm-hmm. When you hear the words go for launch, you're going to want to hold on. Yeah. I actually did hear a story that somebody met Gary Sinise and asked him about working on Mission Space. 
Yes, I've heard this story too. <laughs> yes. And he was really hung over, right? Yeah, he was totally hung over during, during the filming of it. Like he flew in to do it and he, he had almost forgotten he, in the story. The person was talking to me is like, oh yeah, I, that's right. I did that. And he was talking about how he came in to film it. He was totally hung over from the night before. And if you look at his eyes in the video, it's like you, they're yeah. really red. So, so that, that leads to two asides, uh, which have nothing to do with this, but I, I feel compelled to throw it in here to put some variety in our show at the moment. The first is the story of the guy who played um, uh, Anakin Skywalker when they take the mask off in Return of the Jedi. And he, oh, yeah. sh- and he shows he's a famous English actor and he shows up to, to shoot it that one day scene, which was very secret on the set and everything. And so he runs into Ian McDiarmid, who is Emperor Palpatine, and they know each other. And he says, oh, what are you doing here? He says, I don't know, some sort of science fiction thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be Darth Vader without the mask. On. But but the Disney related story. Uh, I, I, so I've been catching up on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, which he's done for like three years. Great podcast where he interviews all these old Hollywood types and, and whatnot. Today, they happen to be one of the ones I was listening to today. They start talking about Thurl Ravenscroft. And so Gilbert starts to recount uh, how Thurl Ravenscroft was in the Kiki room. And he's like, and I recorded this thing where I was, I'm supposed to be with this other bird taking over the thing. And Thurl Ravenscroft is doing this, but he can't pronounce Thurl Ravenscroft's name. And he's, and he keeps calling it the Kiki room. And it's just hilarious because I'm like, oh my God, everybody on this podcast, their head would explode if they heard him calling it the Kiki room and not the Tiki room. Getting back to this very important topic of the attraction. uh, As third officer Collins finishes up, uh, we make the jump to hyperspace. Uh, which puts a psychedelic slit screen tunnel effect on the top and bottom screens. It's like incredibly, you can't tell from the videos that are out there because it's all washed off, but it was like, it's this crazy thing with like oranges and blues and pinks. And well, I, I guess actually once we release that film, Todd, people will actually be able to see it in full glorious Technicolor. Exactly. 16 millimeter glorious HD. And it, it's uh you put it on a loop. It's pretty trippy. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, plays this real wonky sound, uh, as we're going through hyperspace and it flashes a lot of lights in the cabin. And then once over, we have arrived finally at the planet Mars, which is visible on the, on the top screen. Yeah. So, uh, we're here for a tour. So the ship launches two drones. How about them? They had drones with cameras on them. They accurately <laughs> predicted the future. Attention all stations. Outer lock is now open. Stand by to launch camera drones. Those small unmanned rocket ships you see leaving us will shortly be sending back television pictures as they fly near the surface. But we'll continue our view from orbit also. And they, from what we could tell, and, and we'll talk about the film a little bit later, but I believe they're models. That's what it, you know, they're, they're models with this flashy animation uh, exhaust and, and, and propellant flames coming out the back, which is, I, yeah, for a time, it's pretty cool. I can't even tell if they're models or they're actually just like photographs of models, of models that are animated. Sm- yeah, it's animated really, yeah, that one yeah, is kind of cheesy. 
Um, but yeah, the the whole flashing flame effect is weird on that. Yeah, nothing can burn and where there's no oxygen, but well, we digress. Yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting, the design, like, it's very reminiscent of the black hole in some ways of, like, some of the robots uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. things. So I, I wonder if George McGinnis was involved with just those two little ships or something. So anyways, yeah, we're digressing like crazy. So uh, so with those ships launched, Third Officer Collins takes us on a brief tour of some of Mars's interesting features, like the Mariner Valley, which is uh, the Martian equivalent of the Grand Canyon. And they, they have this one part where they, they have a, uh, a superimposed outline of the United States, like, put on top of, of this Mariner Valley so you can see that it, it's so big it would stretch from coast to coast. Yep. Uh, and we also get to go see Olympus Mons, which is the tallest known volcano in the universe. So uh, one, actually, another cool thing that was done for this is Disney actually built a huge model of the volcano that was big enough so they could fly a camera up the side of it and then down into the caldera. Um, and I'm, I know I have pictures of this somewhere with the people that build it. I saw some sort of article at some point in my life and I'm, I'm desperate to go try to find it because it, it is really cool. And it's, it's a big model. It was not small by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but one of the really funny things about this, so there's this very smooth, uh, glide up the side of the volcano and down and then the probes are are knocked out of control by a shower of what they call meteoric particles <laughs> which I don't know if that's fancy talk fancy science talk or if it's just ridiculous I can't decide but uh, <laughs> the way that the, the graphics work where uh, where the the probe that you're watching on the side monitor gets knocked out. You can tell it's like a, it's like a color thing. And then suddenly it switches to black and white. And the, the, uh, the picture kind of like starts shaking back and forth and then it flips upside down. And, uh, we have one point I was able to get a hold of, of one of the, the films of, uh, of this effect, like the actual, 16 millimeter film that they ran and you can tell uh at the point where it gets hit they actually switched to a still picture of the last frame of that sequence and just waved it back and forth in front of the camera <laughs> and spun it around <laughs> it was you know, but it goes quick enough in the uh in the attraction that it's you, dark it's grainy they they'll, nobody will ever know yeah you can't really tell but oh my god that was so funny um so uh, after the probes get knocked out, they tell you uh, they have to be careful. And then uh, quickly those those meteoric particles hit the ship. The oxygen system is knocked offline. It goes from green to red. And then we have to quickly make an emergency hyperspace, hyperspace jump back to Earth and land safely exactly where we took off. It's Much like, like SpaceX. Exactly like SpaceX. Just like SpaceX. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your exciting trip through mission to mars you get off the doors open you get off and you walk into a hallway that actually had fantastic wallpaper and this is another of us like <laughs> i don't know what it was disney and walls in the 70s but man the the wallpaper that was behind that door when you go into that exit hallway was freaking awesome and i'm <laughs> i need to find more pictures of it because they would make great desktop patterns and things That's um right. 
and then you go out uh if you if you were in one of the rooms you would uh and the stitch is the same way today so you you come out kind of in the front side of uh tomorrowland and uh so when you walk out you can you're sort of facing the castle and then you walk back uh if you come out the other side you kind of wind your way um inside of the building and then come out between uh the gift shop and uh the entrance where you walked in so mission to mars that lasted until uh new tomorrowland uh So it closed, I believe, on October 4th of uh, 1993. Let me make sure that's right. Yep, October 4th, 1993. Uh, And that made way for another attraction that would be known as Alien Encounter, uh, which has its own fascinating history. And I guess in a couple of years, maybe we can talk about that. That's right. So, I mean, you know, Mission to Mars, it's interesting that it lasted that long almost 20 years it, it you know con- considering how there was there was no real upgrades during i mean it's i think some of the dialogue changed over the years and some of the was it some of the footage wasn't it changed a little bit now and then <sighs> no i mean no no it's it i mean i guess the thing is it was probably really cheap to run all they had to do yeah. is, is switch out the 16 millimeter films when they would break you know they there was basically the most sophisticated audio animatronic was Dr. Johnson, but even he had limited functions. The yeah. the audio the other audio animatronic figures in the control room had like maybe one or two moments at the top. They they were not sophisticated. So there was and even if they stopped working, you probably couldn't tell. It's so, it's really a shame Bob Iger wasn't in charge at some point in like the late seventies. We might have gotten a cat from outer space attraction. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I remember that movie. Yeah. So yeah, it it kept chugging along and it ridership went down and down and down and down. Um there are stories of them, you know, over the course of time they were continuing to try to figure out what to do about it. I, I don't think they wanted it to die. Um or at least let it get too stagnant. There's this really funny story that Bob Rogers told on an episode of the Seasons Pass podcast. Who's Bob Rogers? So Bob Rogers, thank you. Uh, Bob Rogers is a former Imagineer. He uh, he was employed by Disney uh, during the period of time um, right before Epcot opened, and he was worked uh, on their films. So he was responsible for uh, Impressions de France. And I think a couple of other small things. He had he has a very on and off <laughs> career with the Disney company. Uh, he has a lot of really funny stories where he would get hired and fired and hired back again and fired again and hired back again and fired again. Um, but uh, the last time he was fired, um, Marty Sklar immediately hooked him up with GM and he worked on Trans Center. So the bird and the robot and the water engine that was those were all films uh that he was in charge of so um during one of the times when he was actually working at disney uh probably when he was hired um but not working on uh epcot films yet or maybe he had finished one of the epcot films and was is trying to work on the next one um he got put on a project to try to come up with new ideas to do something with Mission to Mars. So he and his writing partner were coming up with all kinds of crazy ideas, like trying to have tentacles, like reach into the room. And uh, he spent about six months, he said, 
working on different ideas of, to try to revitalize the show. So they were kind of uh, actively trying to think of something to do with it because again, you know, I, I think the Imagineers had realized like, okay, we're again, we're stuck with this big round room. What do we do with this big round room? Although later on when he um, finally did get put on some of the Epcot projects that went forward, he found out that the uh, the whole mission to Mars thing was just like a, a place that they could put Imagineers who weren't working on any other projects. So they'd have a place to charge to. Uh, yeah, I remember employed. you telling us or somebody sending us that story where they would code everything to that's right. Yeah, to working. And I think it was in Marty Sklar's book or somewhere there was a I, not long maybe Raleigh Crump's book. I forget there was a book I read that in too. Yeah, but I I suspect you know there there probably was. I mean they don't want to let something just sit there and languish uh, if they can help it. So there were probably some attempts over the course of time to do something with it. And, you know, it, it finally took until the 90s. But yeah, my God, that show ran for 20 some odd years uh, somehow. Yeah, <laughs> look what's there now. I mean, we're pretty close. With... Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, that's true. Another I, 20. Yeah, I, I think Stitch actually had gone longer than Mission to Mars in that space. And that's that's still kind of mind blowing. Yeah. The, uh, but so, I, I still attribute that early 90s Tomorrowland. I mean, I remember as a kid, it was pretty lame. There was, I mean, you know, you'd just kind of skip everything, go straight to Space Mountain. At least I did. Like, Star Jets were sort of, like, dated looking. Delta Dream Flight wasn't much. It just was kind of, like, all do. But that's mine. Oh, the ironic thing now is that the Star Jets would be incredibly retro. It would be awesome yeah. back there. But that tale for another day. But why don't we talk about the film we have, guys, right? We yes, have, what's up with this? So we've been hinting at this for a long time so it's time to tell everybody what we've got we were able to acquire um the actual film from the upper scanner of the mission to mars attraction and uh this piece of film fortunately was actually never used it was recovered um and this was one that was in storage and never never was put on the projector so we were able to obtain it. We scanned it in, and um, we scanned it at high definition, and we matched it uh, as best we could to the, or the to the soundtrack, and um, it came out really, really good. I mean, the, the as, as we mentioned earlier when how and I were talking about the drones, um, you realize how cheesy some of the effects were because you never saw it this in this clarity. Uh, you saw that you know. 35 feet above you or 20 feet above you on a ceiling and um, on a grainy projection screen. So it's a real treat to be able to see. This is probably the only film so far that we have that was actually in an attraction. And it's the 100% authentic footage um, from the show. So we're going to release that. It's got the soundtrack on it. Um, it is the upper scanner. So there's a lot of sequences that aren't overly interesting uh, as they, uh, you know, there's just static on the screen or, or the launch or stuff like that. But it's still a, a very, very rare piece of, of history. So I think all you guys have seen it so far, and uh, we're going to let everyone else take a look. So so we'll post that up. Um, we'll include it in the sh in these show notes. We'll also do a separate um, announcement and posting of it, but uh, it came out great. Well, Hal, thank you very much for that uh, walk down Tomorrowland history lane there. I, I remember the attraction found there. I really enjoyed it. So um what do you have uh, in store merchandise wise to commemorate this? Do we have anything coming up? Yeah, so we gotta we gotta have some Mission to Mars t shirts because yeah. gosh, that's I mean, cool. If, if you're gonna do this, if, I mean, God bless all of you for sitting through that because 
I, I wouldn't this be is... surprised if a lot of people have never really realized this was there. You know what I mean? Like it's, you know, at least people my age or, you know, around that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the vast, the vast majority of our listeners, you know, came up probably, uh, I think they finally remember alien encounter and were disappointed that that was taken out. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of you, the listeners out there are, are definitely not of this time period. We'll, we'll come up with something cool and appropriately retro. Excellent. So uh, for all of you out there, if you're interested in seeing any house designs or all the designs we've done in the, in the past, you can go to retrowdw.com forward slash support us. And uh, all proceeds from all those t-shirts, mugs, stickers, laptop covers, the, oh, you name it, they're there. All proceeds help to keep the show on the air. And as always, our pins are available at retrowdw.com forward slash pins. Um, guys, before we close this out, I know we kind of have a schedule for the remainder of 2017, and um, next month is a pretty big month taking people back. Should we tell them where we're going? Tell us where we're going. Well, it's in the schedule. Aren't you looking at the schedule, Brian? I am not. I'm not either. All right. Well, we're going to take a little trip on a magic journey through imagination next month. Oh, so. oh boy. So yeah. we're uh, we're going to journey into your imagination with Figment, the second <laughs> version. Journey into imagination. The original, the best, the one and only. So Figment, so Dreamfinder, that whole deal, all this. The whole thing we've got in the, the playground, all that stuff. JT, Neon, you're finally going to find tours. out what the hype Gosh, is all so about. So if you are That's not right. subscribed to us, you probably need to do that now. Like hit it up, make sure you get next month because that's a big one. That's Fig right. Mint. It's a big one. It's a big one. Uh, so and whatever we do, we will not do it justice. We I'm just sure. call this one Figment. <laughs> that's, man. Epcot, going back to Epcot, <laughs> that's huge. Well, you know, it's funny. One of our old episodes is called One Little Spark, and it's all about the history of Epcot. And it gets tons of listens, but I think half of the people are just like, oh, this is about Figment turning to imagination. No. They get 10 minutes into it and like, nah. Screw these guys. It's like so. the uh, the movie Best Defense with uh, Dudley Moore. And uh, I'll never forget when the movie came out, Eddie Murphy was like the hottest thing in Hollywood at the time. So he is in the movie for 45 seconds. They put 20 seconds of that in the trailer. So yeah. everyone went to the movie to see it, expecting it was like an Eddie Murphy's in the Army movie. And he was literally like, what you saw in the trailer is about half of his total time in the film. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So, all right. Well, next month, we'll take you back to Journey into Imagination. And as always, thank you to all of our listeners for listening. If you can, give us a shout out and a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, concerns... Give us a shout at podcast at retrowdw.com. And we'll see you next month. And with that, Brian, take us out. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro Disney World on Twitter and Instagram at RetroWDW. On Facebook at Retro Disney World. And for all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, you can find our producer, Jason Bartell, from Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, at GoAwayGreen. For JT Couser, at LS1JT. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook, at Brian P. Miles.